Welcome, everyone. We have a very exciting guest in studio today. The book is called The Beirut Hellfire Society. Uh, it is... I was going to say a follow-up. It's not a follow-up. It's the newest book from author Rari Haj. Uh, it follows uh, a number of other uh, really, really well-received books, like extraordinarily well-received books, like De Niro's Game, Carnival, Cockroach. Uh, this book is uh, in stores right now. We're going to tell you all about it uh, in just a couple of minutes. I want to start, though, by letting people get to know you a little bit. So welcome. Thank you. It's good nice to be to here. So you were born uh, in, or you were, grew up in Lebanon, and you grew up surrounded by books, which I think is probably a prerequisite for an author. Tell me a little bit about your early life, if you can, and, and your relationship to these books. Um, I was a bad student. Were you? Yeah. <laughs> Very bad student. Um, but I had the opportunity to go um, to a Catholic school. And I was taught by uh, Jesuits and nuns, and they were very um, thorough. Mm -hmm. She gave me solid education, exposed to French literature at an early age, etc. They were severe, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, beneficial in a way. Uh, my father also went to the same school, and he was a reader, though uh, he never. F he was. He's, he still reads. Mm -hmm. he, he reads more than I do. Um, he likes to read. He's a big reader, and and he was a shop owner as well. <laughs> <laughs> he would sit in the shop and read. And, and yeah. He wasn't a good businessman. It affected <laughs> the finances of the family. But yeah, and on my mother's side, I had a couple of uh, journalist uncles who played a bit with poetry and, mm -hmm. and novels. So uh, yeah, he you know we were like lower middle class but readers we we're not it's not anything um it's not aristocracy yeah, or yeah, anything. yeah, yeah. You know, it does not come from that and and i think we all in the family felt a bit uh secretive about reading you know? and, and why is that uh, it was kind of tough neighborhood mm. you know um you don't want to show knowledge sometimes uh, you don't want to you know it's it's Kind of that kind of conservative society where you have to blend in to a certain extent and, and not not, uh, not show much difference. Right. 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 Um, but my father has his secret friends as well, readers. You know, they would meet in the store in the shop, smoke cigars, and, and speak. <laughs> um, and I and I spend a lot of time there, so they were ex exposed to many conversations. Um, in in hindsight, many of them they were just bogus and stereotypes about yeah. the West or or, right. or, or, or <laughs> elsewhere. You know, it's just exaggeration. But I, I guess that you know that built some appreciation for the imaginative and, and lies. Yeah, because it, there's a great quote here that you say that your current literary success is wildly improbable because you were, as you say, a terrible student. Uh, it's, at least that's the word you use here. You hated school, but you must have been picking stuff up along the way because you didn't start writing until a bit later, and we'll get to that, but mm -hmm. hearing those conversations and, and just letting them marinate in your brain mm -hmm. must have been the first step, maybe a baby step, but the first step along to this new career. Definitely. I think within these conversations, there's a residue of some oral tradition, right? Yeah. The big um, 
contour, like say in French, you know, storytellers, and and uh, yeah, and and people gathered at the time. There were people, you know, they would to talk politics, etc. Yeah. But there was always some kind of gathering. So, I think that the tradition of storytelling and this oral tradition of storytelling, mm-hmm. where you get together with a group. Mm-hmm. And 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 tell a story or, or or perform in a way in front of a group is hardwired into our DNA. I think that the idea of community that you build when you're mm-hmm. doing it, mm-hmm. of you know, five people facing this way, one person facing this way, telling mm-hmm. a story, uh, is is something that creates empathy. Mm-hmm. That is something that creates community. It's I think vitally important, and I think we lose it a little bit now mm-hmm. in an age when we all look at our screens all the time and right. we don't. Uh, spend enough time talking to one another. Right. It's uh, also a question of um, endurance, you know, attention. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just finished this book, Sapiens. So you, have you read it? No, you know, no. He, he says that uh, that skill of, uh, of narration is what made uh, humans distinct. Mm-hmm. Because it brings... The imaginary, etc., and then innovation, and and eventually destruction. I guess that's where we're going. <laughs> Hopefully, we're not quite there yet, uh, currently. But um, so you immigrated to the to the U.S. first. You lived in New York, and mm-hmm. you lived in Canada. Um, why did you choose to immigrate? Was your family on board with this with this move? It's a huge move because you didn't speak English at that point. I did a little bit. Yeah. I did a little bit. I had a couple of courses at school, which was not much really, because uh, in my first language is Arabic, so I studied in Arabic and French as well. So the books were partially imported from France, etc. So uh, you know, I, I I grew up as as a polygot. Uh, yeah. Polygot. Yeah. Thank you. And. Um, and uh, so that exposure to many languages and many identities to a certain extent, you know, if you're Lebanese, you're born with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because French and Arabic don't have any relationship to one another. Do they? N- n- in terms of... Linguistically, you know? No, uh, no. no, no further, and so you does your... Imagine. You have to split your brain down the middle to, to understand. Did you, did you, were you able to, to see the connective tissue between the two languages and help you to understand the language more? I think I think what happens is it's inevitable that you're going to have you have a kind of a, the formation of a Creole language, you know, mm-hmm. happening in Algeria, Morocco, all these um, brisk and 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 unlikely encounter yeah. produce a third kind of language and I yeah, I think uh, you know, uh, I mean there's a great influence uh, of, of French tonality mm-hmm. in the in some Lebanese dialect. Uh, many words as well. Anything that related to technology or certain thought or you know that it's always infiltrated that, uh, and and vice versa. I mean, Arab. You know, even in in Spanish language, there's about five hundred words that has the origin in the Arabic language. Right. Uh, and in Europe, etc. So these, I, I don't see them as binaries as much as like natural exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, it's inevitable, right? Uh, I'm speaking mm-hmm. with Rari Hajj. The book is called The Beirut Hellfire Society. It's in stores right now. We will tell you all the details of that uh, shortly. But I want to talk about living in New York. So from what I understand, when I was reading, you get there and you say you spoke English a little bit, but you couldn't find books in those days in French or Arabic to mm-hmm. read. So you taught yourself English 
because your love of reading sort of pushed you that way. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, yeah. I, just, um, I also was curious at the time when I arrived. Um, there was no internet, and mm. you had to wait for news. Lebanon was, was in the midst of the war, and I, I started picking up the New York Times, looking for images, trying to figure out what's going on. And little by little, uh, I had a job in Manhattan, uh, or you know, between Brooklyn and Manhattan. Yeah. I would commute and I would read the New York Times, not, not knowing. Exactly. Reading. What, yeah, yeah. With yeah. um, a bit of watching TV and then getting immersed in the culture, I started picking up books. Uh, and that was, uh, it was better. Yeah. Better. Was there a Lebanese community there that you were able to, to fit into at all? Very few friends. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not like Montreal. Montreal right. has a very big Lebanese community. Um, few friends. Yeah. 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 And and so you then come to Canada. You end up in Montreal. We were talking about Montreal just before we turned on the microphones. And uh, it's such an interesting city to me because every time I'm there, I go once a year, and I spend about a week there, a new part of it reveals itself to me. Mm-hmm. And I find it such a, such a uh, not only a, an uncommonly beautiful city, just mm-hmm. visually to, mm-hmm. to have a look at, but I love how all the, the various parts of of. Uh, Montreal fit together to form this really mm-hmm. uh, what I think is a really unique whole. Yeah, I I love Montreal. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm probably my biggest identity. I always say I'm Montrealer. When they ask me, you feel Quebecers? Yeah, or yeah. Canadian. I say I'm Montrealer. <laughs> I belong to that, to that island. Um, it's a great city. It's uh, Montreal. Uh, you know, if when I give an analogy, it's like somebody who's very promiscuous but secretly promiscuous. <laughs> and it's, it is a promiscuous city. It's great. I mean, it's uh, um, it's lax about sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's always things to discover. Yeah. It's true. Uh, it's a living to, it's a city to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a big on monument. I mean, beside the old Montreal, yeah, yeah. but it's not a monumental city where sometimes, you know, tourists come and they ask us, what should we see? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not like, it's not. I, I think you experience it more than. Then right. see, you are taken by the beauty of it right. because the old buildings are there and it's it lovely cobblestone streets in some parts. Uh, but you experience Montreal. Yes, you do. You don't stand in front of a statue and say, look at that statue. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's right. And how long did it take? We've just got about a minute left. How long did it take to become a Montrealer for you? Or was it immediate? Did you just love it immediately? No, it wasn't immediate because uh, when I first arrived, I lived in outside of the right. city it's only when i started living moved inside of the city and when i lived start, uh, in my land uh which was a artist that has many artists right. uh i mean a neighborhood that, that had many artists and a couple of italian cafes where yeah. all the rejects of the world <laughs> met <laughs> whoever doesn't have a nine to five you can find there uh, but I also, um, it's sad because I'm watching the gentrification of that yeah, space, yeah. and uh, I don't understand the bourgeoisie. They just want to be like artists, but end up making it a suburb again. Yeah. I just, I just don't understand that that kind of envy towards artists or wannabe. It's, it's very, uh, you know, the moment. I, I think it's very freeing. The idea of. Wanting to be an artist, but living in a giant house somewhere. 
You know, people are like, oh, it must be great to be an artist as I get my butler to bring me my uh, my tea. Oh, I'd love to be an artist. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Rari Haj. The book is called The Beirut Hellfire Society, and we'll talk all about that in the next segment. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Richard Krauss. You've probably read De Niro's Game, Cockroach, Carnival. Those are three other books by my very special guest this week, Rari Haj. The new book is called Beirut Hellfire Society. It's already getting uh, great reviews. I was going around online today, and I don't normally read uh, reviews of something. If I'm going to write a review, I don't normally read reviews in advance. But for this one, I wanted to see what people were saying. And again, it's just enormous praise everywhere. Does it, Do you read them, and do, do they matter to you? Because I wonder if it gets in your head after a while. Because there, the the things that are said about you online are very complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> Till they read the book, I <laughs> get offended. Um, I read them because um, my publicist and the, um, you know, the publisher the, and the everyone publishers, they sent it to me, and yeah. so I um, I get tempted. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, you do. I, I, sometimes I do, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's. I, I just wonder, I, because I, it, there's two kinds of artists. People that say, oh, no, 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 I never read anything. And you know that secretly they do. And then there's the people that, that, that say, yeah, you know, sometimes I read them. And I always wonder uh, what kind of reaction there is to it. I write about film, and I write critically about film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this last weekend, I had to write terrible things about two movies and I know that nobody sets out to make a bad film and you know I in 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 my heart I felt kind of badly about it but I mean I've been doing this for 20 years it's happened before uh, but I have to have the ethics to write truly about what I feel about things um, and and uh, for me it was like a troubling kind of weekend and I kept thinking to myself man I hope these people don't read this review <laughs> <laughs> No, I think you're doing a necessary thing. We don't want to end up with flattery and compliments and, you know, just good reviews. And yeah. uh, I think uh, create an exchange and um, you have certain responsibility towards the public. It's expensive mm-hmm. pain. Exactly. You know, $30 or $25. I know. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's okay. I I'm I I I think critique is necessary. I do it in my in my books. Mm-hmm. Uh, satire is necessary. Yeah. Um, offense is necessary. That's why I live in Quebec. That doesn't <laughs> apply. <you know? laughs> it's refreshing, you know. <laughs> yeah, they they really uh, in in terms just sort of culturally, I think are less. I don't know, politically correct than the rest of the country, do you think? Well, it's, it's, I think, and uh, I hope I'm not stereotyping, but I think the, it's two tendencies here. There's the French tendencies, go back to France, where mm-hmm. intellectual exchange includes um, confrontation. You can be confrontational. Right. It's expected, actually. Um, the British are a bit more diplomatic. It's looking for a consensus. Right. And I think uh, you can see that in, oh, um, I hope I don't revive the separatist movement. No, no. Anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> Somehow I think that issue has been, been solved or at least temporarily uh, right. solved. Um, let's talk about the book a little bit. I want to get back a bit later. We're going to talk about your time spent as a cab driver because I think uh, there are 
two jobs that if you want to write, if you really want to know about people, there's two jobs uh, that you can do um, other than going to school and doing all that other stuff. The jobs, bartender and cab driver, <laughs> I think are two great jobs and two great ways to really understand people. So we'll get to that in a little while. But let's mm -hmm. talk about the uh, Beirut Hellfire Society. This book is, uh, it, it felt different to me than the other books because it's written uh, uh, or narrated in the third person. Right. And and the others, as I'm thinking back, aren't. And so why the decision? I mean, I don't know. For me, it feels like a big shift. Maybe as a writer, it, it, it's just simply another tool in the toolkit. I heard that it's a natural pro projection of every writer's career. Is that right? Yeah. With the me, me, me. And <laughs> I realize there's somebody else in this world. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it is about death. And I... I think the only way to write about death in the first person if you make it um, from beyond mm -hmm. the grave. So right. it's, it's a technical issue as well. Um, but I like the first person. I, I, it's, it was a challenge for me, but it worked. I was terrified first. Um, and, and, and I feel like I'm writing about other people this time, mm -hmm. not just about my own experience, biography. Um, it is a book set in a in a war setting, but it's not about the war. No. And I think, and I think that maybe somewhere to distance myself from the bio, autobiographical. Right. Yeah, I don't want to you know keep repeating uh, that same trauma. Um, so um, yeah, it, it was a form of distancing myself and 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 paralleling also the character. The character is. Um, is an observer. Um, yeah, there's that distance between him and and. Well, that distance mm -hmm. between him and the other characters, but uh, but he's an outsider. I mean, yeah. like like many of the characters in, in in your other books. Yeah, he's an outsider, and um, you know, there's many things that made a, I made a little list of the things that make him an outsider. Um, you know, he he is equated with death. He is someone who. I don't know. Is it does the dirty work? He 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 takes care of of dead bodies that no one else wants to to mm -hmm. deal with. Mm -hmm. um, so people that have fallen out of favor, uh, whatever it may be, he mm -hmm. he he deals with that. He lives alone. Uh, there's a number of things that set him apart from the rest of society. The rest of I guess normal society or whatever word you want to use. Mm -hmm. um, and I found him fascinating. I mean, I think there's more people outside the circle than there are inside the circle. So yeah. there's more outsiders than anyone wants to admit. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but they are, uh, generally speaking, for me, more fascinating, more interesting to to uh, read about or to experience. Um, what is your fascination with outsiders and, and people that live just a step away from what we might consider normal um, society? Yeah, I think... Um... That's. I think every writer, you know, has a bit of an obsession with a theme or or some kind of existence, and I, and I have an obsession with, uh, with people who live <laughs> on the margins. Um, my own experience, I think. Yeah, sometimes you're born an outsider. Outsider is not something that you acquire. I think. Right. Uh, you see babies playing alone, or you know, kind yeah. of. Uh, they call them shy or whatever, but the. There is an innate need to be to be uh, to be elsewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, there's all these you know uh, 
theological movement about being elsewhere or political, etc. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I'm not in that sense. I'm not looking. I'm not writing as an outsider. I think uh, I'm an insider of an outsider. Right. <laughs> <I'm> dead, yeah. <laughs> when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Rai Haj. We're talking about Beirut Hellfire Society. His new book. Uh, it's getting rave reviews. Some of which he's read. Uh, <laughs> others he hasn't. Uh, when we come back, we continue the conversation. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Richard Kraus. We are talking to author Rai Haj about his book, Beirut Hellfire Society. Uh, it's in stores right now. Uh, it's getting tremendous reviews. And, and you know, this is a book, I think, that explores... Um, it, it, here, here's what I think about this book. Mm -hmm. This is a book that that is set in a very specific place that many of us have not experienced. I've never lived through a war, been in a war zone, that kind of thing. Uh, but is universal in the themes mm -hmm. that it that it puts forward. So you have one of these uh, interesting pieces of art that is not only uh, specific and in, in it's really specific in its detail, but but expands to uh, a universe that anyone can understand because it's mm -hmm. about true feelings and about the way that we interact with one another on a on a day to day basis. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what you strive to do as an author is set up something that that creates a world but also speaks to as many people as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's good. I think I agree with your description. It's going from the local to the universal. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Um, I mean, in terms of the local, yes, it's uh, it's very confined uh, in a space around the cemetery. Um, but I think also uh, that's the characteristic, maybe, and that's why I I think Lebanon works for that novel because it's an interesting place. Mm -hmm. um, Seventeen or eighteen uh, sects. Yeah. who have history of, of <laughs> coexistence and wars yeah. um, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm stressing I'm stressing the, the religion an organized religion and I think it's becoming with this resurgence of religion yeah. and 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 retreat of progressive values um, I think Lebanon plays um, it's an interesting place to watch uh, for Europe, for yeah. everywhere else. So as Lebanon goes, so does the rest of the world, possibly. <laughs> possibly, but it's it's one of those places that fail to have that sectarian, uh, I mean, uh, uh, secular place yeah. where all religion could meet. And I believe that um, religious coexistence can only happen in a secular um, spaces. Right. Uh, because let's face it, you know, I mean... Every community thinks their God is the God, so, <laughs> so you have to, you have to have some kind of neutral space. Right, right, right. And and Lebanon was always attempting to secure that space and continuously failed, continuously failed. Um, and that's the, the Achilles heel of this place. It's, I'm not being nationalistic, but I'm I'm mm -hmm. just I'm, I'm I'm talking maybe as a political science or you know, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, observer. Um, yeah, so so in that sense, um, I'm questioning religion. Mm -hmm. I'm giving a space to, like you said, marginal people who are um, either not accepted or they had to crave their own 
community and space to survive the way they want to live. Um, yeah. And they're faced with almost certain death, though. Yes. And, and that's one of the things, one of the, the things that I took away from this is the idea that when you are faced with almost certain death or if death is just all around you, how do you move forward? You know, what do you do? How do you, how do you survive? I mean, it, it something must kick in, mm -hmm. but, but how do you, do you make plans for the future? What do you do? What's your outlook like when it's fairly bleak? Yeah. You, um, it's either you become combative mm -hmm. and, you know, you organize yourself with people like you, right? <laughs> but that means you take part in this combat mm -hmm. or you leave. Right. Um, I think some of my characters decided to, you know, to stay and, and live secretly the way they want to live mm -hmm. in defiance to all the creeds, religious, you know, hegemony and etc. Uh, and some people just wanted to leave. Right. Um, um, and some people were just fascinated by the whole, by the whole theater. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's something very theatrical about the novel. They just want to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And you were at, at certain points in your career, a photographer. You were, uh, we talked earlier about you listening to the, the, to the men sitting around your father's shop telling stories. You were a photographer. Now you weren't when you lived in, in Beirut, but I have a feeling that a visual eye isn't something that you develop. I think you have it. And I think, and I wonder if it's a stretch to ask if when you lived in Beirut, you were thinking visually, which is then you've taken in these images, you've taken in these ideas and, and, and through some sort of strange osmosis, they've come out, mm -hmm. uh, as words rather than, you know, that uh, you've taken two different kinds of art, combine them together and then turn them into a third kind of art. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. There's, um, my approach to writing is, is a bit photographic. Mm -hmm. I always imagine myself on a certain distance. Uh, I imagine myself in the, in the sun, in the, in the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, just like a photographer, you have to be at certain proximity, yeah. you know, when you're taking a photograph, or at least street photographer or some, you know, world photographer, yeah. etc. So there is that. So you're in it. You're part of the scene, and you're a certain close proximity, but also you're distant. So, uh, uh, and and you're taking part in this is just temporary. Um, Susan Sontag says that a photograph is like a maxim. It's like a proverb. Um, it's 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 concise, yeah. short, and leaves much to interpretation, and and it's always evolving into some other interpretation. Uh, I like that, mm -hmm. and I, um, I I try to write my book in that way. You know, where you can leave things to interpretation at some point. Um, but I also uh, yes, I I my my uh, contact with photography goes way back, even Beirut. And I, me and my cousin, I think we picked up this camera, and we decided at one point, much like a scene in in the book, to chase bullet uh, to chase um, falling bombs. Right. Uh, we were obsessed with freezing a, <laughs> a bomb. Can you imagine, how old are you at this point? Oh, we were maybe 14. Did 15. you understand the destruction that was probably going to follow this 
falling bomb? Well, we, we saw smoke yeah. and we, you know, we heard the thing and then yeah. we get terrified and start running. But uh, I, I don't know but what we were thinking. But you had to get that image, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of madness. I think we, instead of adopting fear and then, you know, uh, getting away from the war, we decided to become mad. Just like like everybody else, it's a coping mechanism. <laughs> it's a coping mechanism. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. You know, and as a fourteen-year-old boy, you know, I don't know. I suppose I was going to see action movies or something, and you're creating your your living in one almost. You know. <laughs> uh, in the acknowledgement of the of the new book, you write, "This is a book uh, of mourning for the many who witnessed senseless wars and for those who perished in those wars." And we've been making the book sound very grim. I think, and so we're talking about death, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's no. not a grim book at all. No. Uh, there's humor in here. Yes. There is there is there is a, a lot of really life affirming moments in this, and I guess maybe that is that comes from from having experienced it firsthand, and now uh, I don't know funneling it through your art. And you know what? We're almost out of time for this segment. Let's come back uh, on the other side of this. Uh, of this commercial, and we'll we'll continue talking about this. I'm talking to Rari Hajj. The book is called Beirut Hellfire Society. It's in uh, fine bookstores right now. You can pick it up. Uh, when we come back, we continue talking about the book, and we'll talk about what it was like to be a cab driver and how it influences the life of a writer. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm speaking with Rari Hajj. The book is called Beirut Hellfire Society, and we've been discussing the book, we've been discussing the themes in the book, and just before we left, I said uh, that in the introduction, in the acknowledgments of the book, you write, this is a book of mourning for the many who witnessed senseless wars and for those who perished in those wars. Uh, and as I read that, and as I realized all the conversation we've had about this, is that it makes uh, the book seem like it's very grim, and it's not. It's a book that, that brims with life, that has humor in it as well. Um, it, does that come from the experience of actually having lived through a war and you have to cope somehow, so you find what joyful moments you can just to get through it? Or is it a literary device, or you tell me? Yeah, wars are not, are not always so grim, you know. There are periods of intimacy period yeah. where people gather in, uh, in shelters and I had great you know experiences with friends or playing etc um, it's bleak of course yeah. but but within that I think uh, humans are resilient that but I uh, you start I think I think eventually you start realizing the absurdity of life <laughs> <laughs> and you know I think absurdity eventually leads to laughter um, I mean, I, you know, my my problem with, well, this is this is such a big confession now. Right. My problem with re, with religion and religiosity is it's so austere. It's just the fact that so, if you read all these manuscripts, there's not even one joke. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's bleak. Yeah. That's you know, that's and and and, and pessimistic, and you know, um, so I had to do a bit of poking. Mm -hmm. uh, Bit of uh, um, dark humor. Um, I'm very influenced by um, uh, by Eastern European literature. They're master of the absurd. Mm -hmm. They're masters. They're they're very funny. I think nobody does black humor like they do. You know, um, they have great great uh, novelists. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know where it comes from. I, I, I don't know, but I think it's unique to them. It's uh, that tragic, you know. Um, you know, the Russian has it to have it to a certain extent mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me because I just think that it that it is uh, the the tapestry of life, right? All those all those threads are woven together to create a, a larger whole. And if you if you don't have one of them. Yeah. You know, then it, then, it, then it feels a little emptier. It feels a little uh, less interesting. That's right. <laughs> when you write, I understand that you need complete silence. Yeah. And 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 why so? Is it just that you are so uh, focused on the thing that you're doing that any distraction will take you out of it, or or what is the what's the reasoning? I think there are many kinds of writers. You know, when you say writer, is what kind of writer? Some writers they rely on research, so yeah. what I call is informative writers. Right? right, right, right. And some readers, when they read a novel, they want to be informed. They want to learn. It's pedagogical, you know. So you could. And you know, like I said, many kinds, some kind, and they just want to be transported elsewhere. It's just that transition where you go into that. It's a cliche to say zone, but yeah. it is. I can't describe it any other way. And uh, noise reminds you of the world that you do live in. Right. So uh, I think noise, food, anything that is concrete is just brings you back immediately from that space where you travel to. Um, I like to listen to the musicality of the world, mm-hmm. of my, my writing. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't like intrusion, that's all, yeah. any kind of intrusion. So, I, you know, when I write, I, I travel some places where I don't know anyone. And I rent a room somewhere where I, you know, and, well. uh, and the challenge is to, to have a silent place. And, and But the tragedy is that I can't deal with nature, so I have to find something <laughs> in a city, city <laughs> that is silent. And believe me, it's becoming so hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. You need to build thing. a little bunker in your house, in the basement <laughs> of your house or something. You, but then you'll be accused of things. <laughs> <laughs> right, the dungeon. The newspapers will call it the dungeon. <laughs> um how long does it take to write something like this? And when you start, do you do you know where it's going? So do you know where it's going to end, or is it a a, a constant uh, um, revelation to you as you're writing? It's a constant revelation. It's a constant surprise. Like I said, there are many kind of writers. Mm-hmm. Some some plan it. Some you know some do it topography or yeah, yeah. you know follow charts. So yeah. Um, no, for me it's a it's always a surprise. I don't know where I'm going. Um, tentative, tentative ideas. Once the subjects start materializing, then I move into certain direction. Right. But no commitment. Yeah. Um, I yeah, it's a bit of floating, bit of working, bit of inspiration. It's a mystery. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I still always think that um you know you accomplish something and but I always feel I'm an imposter when I'm when I'm not writing I always feel I'm an imposter. This is something that comes up more and more these days. It's only the imposter syndrome is something I started hearing about about five years ago. Maybe everyone's had it before or thought about it, but it's the idea that you know 
I'm not good at this. When am I going to get found out? When is it going to, when is, when is all this going to come crashing down? But I think that, and cause I have it too, I'll tell you. And, and I often think though, that it's the thing that pushes you. Mm. It's the thing that, that, you know, I'll prove to them I'm not an imposter <laughs> and you just keep moving through. Oh well, yeah. The necessary insecurities. You know. Yeah. Mm. You were a cab driver for a long time. Tell me a little bit about, uh, being a cab driver, as I said, I think that being a bartender and being a cab driver are two jobs that anyone who has anything to do with people, whether you're a writer or a broadcaster mm -hmm. or working uh, in whatever job it might be, if you have to deal with or understand people, do those two jobs and mm -hmm. you will understand what you need to know. Yeah, different encounters. Yeah. I think bartenders are always facing the clients. Mm -hmm. It's much more... Um, yeah, the the conversation, I mean, with the music, I don't yeah, know how yeah. they have conversation, but I think uh, they're more immediate mm -hmm. uh, uh, reading reading the the client. And I'm still talking about but they <laughs> tend to be homogeneous. No? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they all go to the same bar. Right, something. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think taxi driving in that sense, it's, it's much more um, eclectic. You don't know what kind of, you have no idea who's going to come to your and where you're going to end up. Where you're going to end up, what kind of conversation, what's the class, what's the education, whether they have money or not. Yeah. Um, and it's an indirect, indirect conversation. Uh, you're in this bubble. You have the word in front of you that is yeah. keep on hitting you with images and moving. And, and the conversation is always through a mirror. Yeah, you're looking through the rear view mirror at right. the person, right? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. There's something... Part of neurosis and the whole experience. Yeah. You, sometimes you wonder if they're really there or not. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting job. It's a hard job, though, and it's it getting is. harder yeah. with you know new technology, mm -hmm. Uber, etc. Um, it's becoming tragic now. Mm -hmm. You always said that you would never write about it, and yet you did. You wrote a book. Um, yeah. uh, why? Why did you change your mind? I changed my mind because sometimes writers, you can be utilitarian, thank mm. you. If I'm, if I, uh, um, I needed a movement in that particular, right. uh, in Carnival, my, my third novel. Yeah. I needed um, that, that constant motion, and, and, and taxi driving uh, provides that. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't, you know, in, in all fairness, I didn't use much of the event. If I was writing something much more realistic about right. taxi driving, I would have tons of stories. Yeah. I, 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 again, I just, this, this constant being conscious that you're writing literature obliges you to take different directions, to right. pay attention to language. I mean, some of the stories are sublime, but they just don't fit within that mood or within that language or right. that, what, what you perceive your novel is taking a direction. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, in writing, sometimes you write sublime things, but they just they just have no uh, space or place in the, in the novel. So that's when you cry. Yeah. That's when they, what do they call it? Killing your angels or something <laughs> where they, right. where you have to take out something that's beautiful, but just doesn't work yeah. in that context. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are still in touch with your cab driving buddies. 
Some, yeah. Yeah. Some. I love that because it's a sense of community, right? I think that there, you, you build a community in whatever situation you're in. Yeah. You can build a community, and, and it feels like cab drivers have that yeah. because yeah. of shared experience. Yeah, and, and cab driving, uh, it's funny because cab driving and, you know, family restaurants, they... They, every, they they go through waves of certain community right. taking That's right. you know yeah, yeah. being pre- predominantly there. Uh, I think Montreal started with the Quebecois and the Greeks. Um, then then I think the Lebanese took over, and now it's the Haitian community. So there's uh, depending on the community. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I still have some friends, and I, yeah, a couple of them I see very often, you know, almost every week. Yeah. Um, what do they think of your success as a novelist? Uh, they think I'm very, very rich, and they try to, <laughs> they try to take advantage of me. I have always to pay the dinner. <laughs> That's, you know what? We have to leave it on that note. <laughs> Thank you so much. The book yeah. is called The Beirut Hellfire Society by Rai Hodge. Uh, it's a tremendous book. It is in stores right now. You can pick it up. And uh, it's also available at Amazon.com and wherever it is that you buy fine books. Uh, thank you so much for being Thank here. you for this.